Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. The effort to repeal and replace Obamacare isn't dead, but someone other than Paul Ryan and Donald Trump is stepping up to lead the way. Fred Barnes is here to tell us how Senator Tom Cotton has emerged as a health care power player. Then we're going to talk with Michael Warren about Trump's surprising transition from dove to hawk on Syria. And then Andy Ferguson is coming by to get us up to speed on the oh-so-correct modern use of the pronoun they. All that next on The Confab. And now we're getting the confab going in earnest with Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Fred, welcome to the confab. I'm glad to be here again. Glad to have you back. So, you know, when the previous effort at repealing and replacing Obamacare was undertaken, it seemed to be revolving primarily around the House of Representatives with Donald Trump coming in to try to pressure the House here and there a little bit. But it was really a House of Representatives show. Now the effort seems to be creeping back, but it's not all a House show anymore. Well, that's true. And and particularly in the Senate, uh, Tom Cotton, who was 39 years old and a senator from Arkansas, the oldest, uh, rather the youngest senator in the Senate, uh, has stepped up and he's Mr. Healthcare. In the Senate at the moment, at least he's the only one who's talking about it. He was very critical of that plan of Trump and Ryan that lost, Paul Ryan being the House Speaker. Uh, and, you know, he's a guy who's seen as a expert on military and foreign policy. Right, but a young health- veteran. And, and he's a veteran, spent uh, four years in the Army, including combat stints in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but he doesn't have much extensive experience on health care, but, you know, he's stepped up rather forcefully. And I, I think one of the things that you talk about in the article that Cotton has been really coherent and compelling about yeah. is this notion that you can't structure the change to health care with an anticipation that you're going to get eight Senate votes from Senate de- Democrats to help you undo Obamacare. Part of the plan is you wouldn't have to get them when you initially r- repealed uh, Obamacare, but you would need them later to do lots of things to improve uh, uh, this bill and uh, that replaces Obamacare. Eight Democrats at this point I, it seems like a far-fetched idea, uh, and yet that I've heard Paul Ryan talk about it, and he thinks, oh, well, these will be things that they'll feel that they want to vote for. Well, <laughs> that remains to be seen, and I, I, I uh, agree with uh, uh, Cotton's skepticism about that. Right. It just seems that uh, Democrats are going to want to let Republicans own wholesale <laughs> The uh, whatever happens with health care next. Indeed, as bad as they can make it. Yeah. And uh, so the the chances that they'll help out, um, I don't think there's I don't uh, I don't see that happening. But this will be uh, some months down the road, assuming that Obamacare is repealed. Uh, and and if it uh, if it happens, well, uh Tom Cotton will have to stand corrected, but I'm not betting on that. So what is a cent- Senate centric 
health care bill look like? Well, it looks a lot like the House bill with uh, some differences. You know, one of the problems with that first bill, I think, was by far the biggest problem is over the first two years after Obamacare was replaced, the replacement would allow premiums to rise. Now, premiums have been rising a lot uh, over the years that it, when it was Obamacare, but this would be uh, the first Republican health care bill, and the premiums rise. Uh, Tom Cotton says, and I think rather cogently, <laughs> that this would mean disaster for Republicans in 2008 in the midterm election and in 2020 when Donald Trump presumably will be running for re-election. You just can't do that. It's one thing to criticize uh, Obamacare for uh, having rising premiums, but then once you own uh, the new health care plan and premiums rise, I think that puts you at a great political disadvantage. Tell you, health care just has seemed to be the kiss of death for whoever gets their hands on it. Well, no, no, I wouldn't say whoever. I would say for Republicans in particular when they get their hands on it. You know, it was a it's a Democratic issue, and I'll have to say Democrats screwed it up with Obamacare. Uh, they did a sloppy job, and remember, uh, the bill was finally put together in secret in Harry Reid's have office. To, have to vote for it to know what's in it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, uh, and, uh, but it's never been, but health care has never been a very good Republican issue. Cutting taxes is. Cutting taxes is bad for Democrats, but health care is, is not a Republican strong point, which is the reason some of us uh, urged Republicans to do their tax reform first and then go to Obamacare. But they couldn't help themselves. Is tax reform now ahead of Obamacare repeal and replacement on the agenda? No, it's not. They're still going to try to do uh, Obama, uh, the uh, repeal and replace again, and then they'll then they'll get the tax reform someday, uh, uh, sometime down the road this year, uh, if ever. <laughs> and and I I think that's a mistake. And but one thing I, I think we'll see is one of the big critics now who will get a lot of attention uh, if that happens is. It is Tom Cotton, uh, a guy we thought, well, we want to hear from him on military stuff, but we're going to hear a lot from him on health care. And he has a motto that you talk about in yeah. the uh, in the piece that that health care reform at this point should be to help those hurt by Obamacare, mm-hmm. but not hurt those helped by Obamacare. And some were, you know, whenever Ed, and as he has said, you know, when you go to these town hall meetings, uh, when Republicans uh, are the speakers there, They'll always hear from people in the audience who, who, who said their lives have been saved by Obamacare. They've gotten uh, – they've been helped a lot. To, they couldn't buy health care premiums. They couldn't pay for them without uh, Obamacare and so on. And and there are some of those people. There's no question about it. Uh, the point is, though, uh, that Trump makes and, – and Paul Ryan and Donald Trump would probably agree with him – and that is that there are a lot more people who were hurt uh, than were helped by Obamacare. Fred Barnes, executive editor of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. You're quite welcome. And now on the Confab, we welcome Mr. Michael Warren, senior writer of The Weekly Standard, White House correspondent, all-around great guy. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. So now back um, after the election... Uh, but before the inauguration, Dexter Filkins was writing at The New Yorker about Trump and Syria. Right. And, uh, and he said that, um, that uh, without a doubt, uh, 
President Bashar al-Assad very much wanted Donald Trump to win. Now Assad and his government have got to be feeling very good about their future. He pointed to a, uh, uh, a point in one of the presidential debates where Trump said, I don't like Assad at all, but Assad is killing ISIS. Russia is killing ISIS and Iran is killing ISIS. And Filkins determined that uh, though that's a quite a lot of foreign policy in one sentence, it means <laughs> in all likelihood that the pressure, at least the American pressure, will be off Assad. That was the uh, received wisdom a couple of months ago. What happened? Well, that was then, and this is now. Um, I think that that I think that was an accurate assessment, actually, of Trump and what we can expect from the Trump administration on Syria, uh, particularly vis-a-vis Hillary Clinton, who was much more hawkish on Syria, uh, sort of represented herself, and I think somewhat accurately, mostly accurately, as as, as more hawkish than most others in the Obama administration on Syria. Um, but things have changed. Obviously, this week, these horrific uh, uh, details that we're finding out about the, the latest chemical weapons attack by Assad, by the Assad regime, on a uh, uh, killed you know scores of, of his own people in Syria. Um, not the first time he's done that. It's not the even certainly not the largest attack of its kind that that has happened in his last six or seven years in Syria. Uh, but that's changed a lot of things. It's changed, uh, I think, perspectives in the White House. And most importantly, it's changed the perspective of the president um, earlier uh, in the week, a couple, I guess, the day after the attacks happened, President Trump gave a speech, excuse me, gave a press conference with the King of Jordan, who was visiting the White House. Um, I assume they talked about the about the uh, uh, about the king's neighbor, uh, what's happening in Syria. And he gave in the Rose Garden press conference a sort of emotional for Trump uh, a recounting of, of what he had seen. Uh, happened uh, and denouncing this uh, you could tell he was he was rattled I think by what happened what he saw you do have to sort of wonder well didn't he know didn't he know that beforehand didn't he know that when he said what you just read from from that debate performance well being president can kind of change your perspective a little bit are you suggesting that Donald Trump is growing in office (laughs) well yes absolutely actually actually I am suggesting that Um, look he's got he's got different advisors uh, than he did even when he started, uh, when he was inaugurated. Mike Flynn's gone. You have H.R. McMaster, much more of a sort of uh, a, a typical, you might even call it establishment view. Um, and if he goes uh, to solicit in, uh, advice from the National Security Council, um, Steve Bannon won't be there. Right, right. Now, I, I'm not quite sure where Bannon falls on this issue. It's not one that that he really fits uh, in sort of neat categories. But suffice it to say, the, the view, I think that Bannon might share in sort of that worldview that uh, that Assad is the lesser of, of the two evils in Syria and that ISIS is much more uh, important, uh, that, you know, we essentially have a tacit, almost alliance with the Assad regime and, and with Russia and Iran who are all out there to kill ISIS. Um that that prevailing view, sort of a realist view of Syria, seems to be fading away. You even had um, just a week prior, just a few days before the attack, you had people like Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, and the White House sort of affirming what those those previous two officials said, uh, saying essentially the reality is that Assad is there, and we sort of have to be dealing with that reality. Not, not even the, the Obama administration 
you know sort of said that in the, in their text that that they they always sort of maintain that Assad needed to go. They just never did anything about it. You are starting to hear now from Trump himself, even a little bit from from Rex Tillerson, a move toward let's find a way to remove Assad from power through political processes that have all sorts of different uh, uh, the the important actors involved. But I think the events have changed, uh, certainly the president and people uh, on down the line in the administration. Any sense of uh, what the administration thinks its options are, what they're working through? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm told, and I think the media has been reporting this, um, that uh, Secretary Mattis, the uh, defense secretary, is and has been and will continue to uh, provide the president with military options. There's also all sorts of diplomatic channels here, right? There's, uh, you've heard this from Rex Tillerson, uh, sort of weighing a little more heavily on Moscow uh, that they really don't need to reconsider their support for the Assad regime. Um, so there are a few options there, maybe more sanctions, possible military action. Um, but this is an administration that's really stumbling into a trying to find a new policy on Syria. And they've got to deal not only with the um, sort of foreign affairs of this topic, sort of all of the different international players involved. Right. They've also got to sort out what they can do in the way of having support at home. Right. Um, Donald Trump is not going to have reflexive support from Democrats for any kind of international adventure. Right. But although we might be surprised about how this cuts domestically, you certainly have already started to hear this from uh, you might call sort of Republican or right wing doves within the the, within the Republican Party. Some real concerns. Uh, I've heard Rand Paul say, you know, he's going the president's going to need to uh, get some military authorization if this is if this ends up being a military action. And certainly there will be a lot of Democrats who will who will who will join Rand Paul and some other the more libertarian Republicans in that. But I, I do think that there is there does maintain the Democrats do have somewhat of a hawkish wing, particularly in the Senate, um, that that uh, that may be you know sort of uh, uh, supportive of any kind of mili- of some kind of military action, I should say. And you're hearing this from hawks in the Republican Party, again, particularly in the Senate. Um, they've uh, one of our colleagues at the at the Weekly Standard, Jenna Liffitz, has reported that uh, that she's heard some of the tone from your John McCain's or Lindsey Graham's uh, of the Senate, kind of back off a little bit on their 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 tough criticism of of Trump. That seems to signal to me uh, that they believe that there there's an opening, there's an opportunity here, which they would like to see for the Trump administration for Trump himself. Uh, to do something a little more proactive about Assad militarily or otherwise. So we'll see. But you're absolutely right that this is something that he's going to have to start selling. Uh, if what, whatever it is, whatever the action is, whether it's military or otherwise, he's going to have to start selling it. The the, the, the pictures that are on the news are, are pretty horrific and, and in some ways sell themselves. Uh, but uh, as we saw in the Obama administration, that's not going to be enough. Uh, and if this is something he's going to move forward on, He's going to obviously need political support. Although it is historically a a sort of appealing politically for a president to turn his attention to matters foreign when he's running up against um, frustrations on domestic issues. Is there a reason for the Trump administration frustrated with their efforts to get this, that or the other 
to say, well, at least this is something we can do on our own. Maybe, uh, and that would make him a much more conventional uh, president than than he has been. I haven't heard that, so I can't say that I've heard that from anybody at the White House or I've even sort of been able to read between the lines of what people are telling me. Um, in a weird sense, I, 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 I don't think that the White House and Trump and President Trump himself uh, sort of view things in that conventional lens. They sort of, in a weird way, silo these things apart. And they also, the president seems to think everything's going great anyway. So why would he need to distract anybody if everything's going great? I think deep down he doesn't think that. Healthcare is a, a real problem still. And, and the House has, has gone off to recess without doing anything about it. Um, you do have this, this uh, uh, the, 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 the Gorsuch uh, situation um, you know, being a bright spot domestically. But uh, this is something I think entirely separate in Trump's own mind. Uh, so I don't think we're, this is, this is, he's perceiving this as a way to distract people. And look, he's, he's got a really poor approval rating right now. Um, so, uh, you know, something like this, particularly if it's successful, a military action or something like that against a really bad guy, Bashar al-Assad, who doesn't like America, uh, uh, could do something to boost that. But that would sort of be incidental. Although it's also particularly dangerous to do something as high risk as military intervention in the Middle East when your approval rating is 40, 42 percent. That's that's a good point, actually. Um, and, and so maybe that will also weigh uh, somewhat on his decision. We'll we'll have to see. Um, and again, I think the president is is really kind of stumbling into figuring out what he's going to do. Uh, you've really just seen this kind of about face of where they were headed just a week ago. It, it shows you, I think, Eric, the way that events can uh, change and shape a president in real time uh, in ways that are somewhat unpredictable. Michael Warren, senior writer and White House correspondent for the <laughs> Weekly Standard. Thanks so much for joining us on the Confab. Thanks, Eric. If you like the sort of inside scoop and analysis you get here at the Confab, come and join us in June for this year's Weekly Standard Summit at Colorado's premier resort, the Broadmoor. The summit features two days of in-depth discussions on the new political scene and features special guest speakers such as Charles Krauthammer, The Wall Street Journal's Kim Strassel, and The Washington Examiner's Selena Zito. And, of course, from the Weekly Standard, Steve Hayes, Bill Kristol, and Confab regular Fred Barnes. For more information or to make a reservation, go to weeklystandardevents.com. And now we're joined on the Confab by senior editor Andrew Ferguson. Andy, how's it going? It's going great, Eric. Good, good. You know, so we're going to talk about what you're writing about in the magazine this week, which is pronouns. Now, this is where I might naturally slip in an attempted joke about, you know, please don't turn off your radio. But actually, I suspect, <laughs> I suspect that pronouns and grammar in general is something that people are much more vehement about, care more deeply about, and more actively about than politics. So that's, I, that's true. I mean, people who do care really, really care. Right. So I'm sure that I'm going to commit solecism after solecism here. I won't point the them out. I've already heard a couple and I haven't said a thing. So. You're very right kind. Ahead. You're very kind. In fact, I may have misused they. <laughs>
probably. Everybody does. Everybody does. I do. But, but, you know, everybody does it isn't supposed to be, my father always told me, reason enough to go along. Right, right, of course. The, uh, well, the, the uh, sort of dispute that I talk about in the article uh, started from the uh, a change made in the AP style book, which is the guide of usage that all AP personnel are supposed to use. And, it's and a based, lot of other journalists use it Yes, as well. it has a huge, huge following. And it's actually quite good and um, is, is, is pretty uh, strong in its recommendations and kind of traditional. But uh, it's, it's a fight between the descriptivists who are sort of what you call the relativists in this argument and the more traditionalists who are called the prescriptivists. And a great copy editor, yes, there are such things as great famous copy editors. A guy named Theodore Bernstein from the 50s used to call the descriptivist idea uh, the, the strange notion that the more times a crime is committed, uh, the more reason there is to make it legal. And as you say, people people make these mistakes all the, t- the time. It doesn't mean that they're not mistakes. Although, in a way, the law does recognize that if you do something illegal enough times, it becomes legal, which is to say, a right of way across. A, sure, a, I mean, in property. minor, in my yeah, and, and I think Bernstein made that exception, and certainly in minor things. But you know, if we had an outbreak of rape, or pillage, or murder. Um, I don't think that they will say in Chicago. Are they going to make you know murder legal in Chicago? Just because there's so many to. of them, <laughs> they may have to. Um, so, what's interesting among the many interesting things in your piece is that these days things have been turned so topsy turvy that the prescriptivists have become sort of the descriptivists, and the descriptivists have become the anvil voice of authority. Uh, and and prescriptivism. Yeah, right. The the descriptivists, again, speaking very loosely, is sort of the left of this argument, and the prescriptivists, the one who are defending tradition, are sort of the right of the argument. But the interesting thing is the status quo, the people who are defending the status quo, are the descriptivists, the people on the left. And actually, this is reflected in the world of politics to a large degree, too. Certainly in academia, you know, the it's what I think people call the reactionary left has taken over a lot of the intellectual um, projects of the country. Well, and it's a sort of a transition in the left from, hey, man, do your own thing to, hey, man, yeah, you better yeah, do right. the thing that I'm telling you to do. Right, right. Well, I, I have a couple of examples in the piece of, of descriptivists, the so-called relativists, who are really not relativists at all. They lay down their rulings with an iron fist. And Did you just use yeah. lay the right way? I think you did, but I, I get foggy on the they whole lay lie. Yeah, they lay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to get the AP style book in here and take a look at it. Uh, actually, AP Stylebook is very good on lay and lie, which in other um, style guides has been totally obliterated, the distinction between the two. Uh, AP's point in things like that is if you're going to change the language, if the language is going to grow and admit new new uh, elements to it and absorb new influences, it, it should do so in the direction of clarity and simplicity and not 
just to confuse things. And a lot of the the, the distinctions that the descriptivists don't like to uh, defend are um, very important in terms of getting your meaning across to people. But getting one's meaning across to anyone is far less important in these politically correct times than making sure that your choice of pronoun doesn't make anyone uncomfortable. Right. And, and uh, you know, as we were saying, I mean, there are people who take pronouns very, very seriously. The incident that that, that started this story that, uh, from this week is was that um, uh, the AP for the first time allowed what's called a singular they. So you can, it's now correct to say um, every story Every, everyone should raise their hand, or every student raised their hand, whereas, in fact, every student is a singular, and there is a plural, which, so there's an obvious contradiction there. Something is not right. But because it's so used so often, again, it's sort of being admitted into the language as correct, and that's and what it, AP did. But and it's in, a way to avoid saying every student raised his hand. His hand, right, which is, which is the conventional way of for centuries, is that the 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 um, masculine pronoun? Centuries of patriarchal oppression. Well, that's that's the argument, but it has been accepted for for years that his was a pronoun that encompassed both he and she. Um, but that was, as you say, that's part of the patriarchy that has to be. Um, brought down. And of course, there's a new wrinkle to the whole thing. And the new wrinkle is that it used to be that we fought over these binary terms of he and she. But now the very notion of binary terms is itself an affront to... to A very vocal segment of population. And and in this regard I think the the AP is way behind the curve and they've got they've got some Absolutely. they've got some learning to do. And um I I can I can attest to this in the sense that um I have a daughter who has started college this year and one of the first things she learned upon arriving at college was she was in a group in the dorm and they went around and checked each person to make sure that um, he, she, or however, whatever the person wanted to be known as, that they expressed what pronoun they chose to be referred to as. Right. So it's not just he or she, but Z and Zer and uh, all of these sort of um, non-gendered terms. And what's interesting about it isn't just that this is sort of like you know a request that you be known. It's done in such a way that it's clear that um, if two months later you run into that person again and you use the wrong pronoun accidentally, <laughs> that there that there will there will be hell to pay. Yeah, it's an it's an assertion of identity and and kind of a test of whether you can catch up to what I insist my identity is. You know, uh, here the AP style book, uh, God bless them, uh, really, the editors are, are trying to hold fast, even though they admitted the singular they. Um, and they did it because, for one of, the, one of the reasons was that, that they now believe they need a pronoun for people who identify themselves as neither male or female. Uh, so their solution was, well, we're just going to use they for those people who do not, or that person who does not identify him or herself as he or she. Um, 
And they explicitly say we're not going to use any of these new pronouns that have just been invented, such as Z or Zer and, and so on. So, you know, as you say, AP is way behind the curve, curve and it's um, only a matter of time before the the AP headquarters in New York is burned to the ground, I suppose. And and the editors of the style book sent to re-education camps. Yes. Where once, the first the thing they'll comes. do is sit around and ask what pronoun you want to be known <laughs> right, right. by. So now let, just to make sure, what pronoun would you like to be known by? I prefer just the royal we. That's, that's <laughs> what I use. So. Andrew Ferguson, senior editor of the Weekly Standard and pronoun expert. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you, Eric. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.